0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day.
1: Hi, I'm Amy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Amy. Hello. Um, My story. Well... I grew up in a small Texas town that was in a dry county. It was your typical Friday Night Lights, that whole, I lived that life, and the two goals as a teen were to go to all the football games and how could we find alcohol and buy it underage. I began drinking a little bit when I was in the eighth grade, and um, I really ramped up hard, January of my ninth grade year and um, my father um, My parents had a rocky relationship um, where my father he had so many struggles so many inner struggles That was what he did and my mom tended to spend time trying to keep everything together and um, December the 6th of 1981 my father took his own life and he was I don't like to say he was an alcoholic because I don't know. And it was always his responsibility to say that. But I really believe that he struggled deeply with alcohol and demons in his heart. And um, his timing really was bad. The whole thing just crushed me. It was like someone took a knife and just stabbed my soul and everything in it just ran out all over the ground. My ability to love with a genuine heart, my ability to hold on to anything. Um, it was, it was hard. And um, all of you, I'm sure that have had a loss can understand that. And that was really w- when I was off to the races with my drinking and I um, in order to protect myself, I decided that anger was the only uh, emotion that I was allowed to feel anymore because it kept me safe. And um, that was a dumb idea. <laughs> but um, so I went through many years of uh, rebelling and drinking hard and um, getting, I never got in any trouble with the law except I got an MIP when I was 15 and it was $38. And, you know, it didn't hurt. And so, um, I drank and drank and drank and I, I guess the worst behavior I had was I set my car on fire, the back seat of my car when I was 15. And so the fire department, you know, it was kind of a big deal in a small town. And, um, a year after that, I, I sent, uh, I, I set the front seat of my car on fire. And so I, you know, I had a lot, I had, I had a lot of behaviors that were very representative of, uh, you know, the idea that, hmm something's not going right here. And, um, I went off to college and, um, I went to the, the top rodeo college in the state of Texas and, um, it was not the right place for me to be. And I was, I was wandering, I was just wandering aimlessly and empty. And the only way I could fill my soul was with alcohol and it would go in and then it would come out of those open wounds. And so it was just never, it was never full, never full. And, um, I moved back home after two years of college, and um, had a, you know, I marriage that didn't work. Your typical, you know, my my life was very typical, and um, I divorced. And um, I had always gone to a church camp as a child, and I think that was my saving grace was that I had that, and I um, was reconnected after my divorce with this group of people from church camp. And, um, they began to say, help me patch up my soul. And, um, I'm actually married to one of them now. (laughs) And so, uh, he was my second saving grace that was given to me by my first saving grace, which was God that sent me to camp. Um, my drinking went on for over 30 years and it would go, it ebbed and flowed and it ebbed and flowed. And, you know, we moved to New Orleans, we married, we lived in Austin and we moved to New Orleans and, um, that was a lot of fun. It was a fun place to be. You know, I rode in a parade. You had to tie yourself on to the float. And I mean, it was just, you know, I fell. You know, it was just, it was a fun, fun time. And um, I was going through graduate school and I really, I had to half measure it through graduate school so that I could continue my drinking career. And, you know, honestly, to this day, my drinking career was the longest, most successful career that I've ever had. (laughs) And um, (laughs) that's kind of what you think about. I'm like, okay, well. And um, so I had a child and um, we decided after we had our child that New Orleans was really not the place for us to be. And so we um, moved a year prior to Katrina. And so we moved back to Texas and I was still drinking. And that was, uh, I guess I began to try to get sober in Austin. And then I began to, you know, and it was like, you know, it was a piecemeal. And then we moved to New Orleans and I tried again to get sober several times. And I just never could, I couldn't piece together even a month. And, uh, so we moved back to Texas and, um, one of my dear friends who, oddly enough, is here tonight visiting um, from camp, uh, she, um, she was in the program. So she kind of took me in and, and helped me to start to, you know, understand a little bit more about what the program was about. But I was not ready. I didn't understand. I would read the book and I got nothing out of it because I wasn't ready to open my heart enough and open that door in my soul to let the goodness flow back inside of me. And, um, time went by, we moved just, we ended up in Seattle, which was something that never really crossed our minds. I had never even been to Seattle, um, until we moved here when my husband began working with Amazon. We had our one child. And when we moved here, I almost immediately got pregnant again. And so we had these two babies and childbirth was not easy for me. I almost died in my second childbirth. And, um, so we decided that was enough kids for us and um my inability you know my soul it was yearning my soul was hurting i had these two beautiful children and i was overwhelmed trying to raise them and that was really when my alcoholism just like went up the mountain and um i was a silent but vicious drunk you know i didn't go out and drink i didn't um i stayed home and i could put away a bottle of wine or more you know, every night, and I had these two young children, and um, I was able to to I could keep it together. I guess I was functioning as it were. and um m- my um, body started to show signs, my health started to decline, which we really think when I was pregnant, that was uh, my body was having issues from drinking. and so my doctor I went to the doctor, had blood work done, you know, cholesterol. And, um, he sat down with me and he showed me a couple of years of my blood work. And he said, um, you know, Amy, he said, you know, he's going over it with me. And he said, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? And I mean, I'd known, I'd known for years that I had a problem with alcohol and I could not, you know, I would go to meetings and I would not go to meetings, but I could not verbally express, you know, that I did. It was all here, but everyone around me <laughs> knew it. It was like the elephant in the room. And um, so I looked at him and said, well, you know, if you think that then and have no, have enough evidence to present that with me, then I suppose, <laughs> yeah, okay, you win, and I, I cannot, I, I have to give that some thought. And um, so... <laughs> so, and I had lost, that was in a May, and then June, I, lo- I lost one of my dear friends in Texas to alcoholism, and um, so I knew it was like in May, and I don't do, a, I don't work fast and um, unless I was drinking, and so I decided I would think about it over the summer and kind of get used to the idea and kind of wean myself, and I had never really been able to wean myself very well, and I had only piecemealed together a month of being sober prior to that, and um, I worked on it and worked on it and thought about it and I prayed about it. And I began to diminish uh, those gin and tonics and bottles of wine. And we went on a trip and I decided, okay, my uh, August 25th, I'm like, I've been sober since August 25th of 2014. And so that was going to be my date. And I, I calculate, I was very calculated in choosing it because it was my, it's my sister's birthday and I wanted to be able to say to her when she was 50 that I was one. And so it was just the same. We, we have that kind of relationship. And so, um, so I stopped drinking and I began going to meetings and, um, I met with a very feisty, I met a very feisty, very dedicated woman in this program who, um, Really began to actually help me to open up that soul and just, you know, through people that I was meeting in the program, just slowly the stitch, you know, this, we were stitching together and stitching together all those holes. And, um, it was very emotional for me. I mean, I hadn't cried in in 30 years because I was pissed off and and that was the way I, I operated. I didn't cry. You know, I just stuffed and stuffed and stuffed. And when I became, when I became sober and um, piecemealed more than a month, <laughs> I began to really begin to understand what all of this meant and began to realize that this is um, real. And this is uh, what I was reading. I began to understand and my soul began to heal. And um, all of a sudden I became very emotional and then all of a sudden I couldn't stop crying you know, I would go to the grocery store and I'm crying, you know, I walked around with Kleenex all the time because I never knew when it was going to come rolling out. And it was as if I felt like my soul had been patched up, but all the stuff that (laughs) all this stuff now was coming out of my soul and it, that had been empty. And it was very confusing for me. And, um, it was very embarrassing for me too, because having gone so long without being able to cry and that's a huge part of my story. Um, it was cleansing. Once I got past being embarrassed walking through the grocery store crying, I realized how that it I was just going walking through life and, and I was cleansing and I was, you know, I was sober and all of this stuff was was escaping out of me and it was overwhelming. And um you know when I went through that with my doctor talking with him about being sober, you know, my father shot himself. So I always said no matter what I'm never going to do that to my children ever, you know, because i had felt that pain. I'm like, that is the last thing I want to do to the people that I love more than anything and cherish in my life. And what I realized was with alcohol, I was doing that. It was just a really slow process. And so now, um, you know, my, I am sober. I feel so much better. I am going back to work. I can function in my home. I can love my children with a genuine whole heart. Um, I don't get aggressive. Um, I still get angry, <laughs> but, um, cause that's, I, you know, I think that's life, but, um, I feel like I'm there for my children. And, um, this past year has been a challenge. It's really challenged my ability to be sober. And it's not like I ever felt like I wanted to drink through this last two years, but, um, a year and a half ago, my my beautiful daughter uh, Claire decided that um, we found out that she's Matt. and so we began going through the process of a trans a trans working a transgender child through through that system. The and it you know I thought oh this is great you're transgender okay we're going to walk through this. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. You know just all the things that you go through, and it was really hard for me. It still is hard for me but I can be a mother that um, is, shows up. I'm a mother that's, that sits with him and takes him where he needs to go. And I, I can support him 100,000%. And, you know, uh, that matters to me. And with my younger daughter, I have been able to do the same thing through her sadness by losing about losing a sister and my husband and losing a daughter and, you know, uh, embracing a son at the same time. Um, it is really an interest. it's, it's an interesting and fabulous journey for us. And I would not be able to do it. I, I stop and think about, you know, if it hadn't been for this program to help me understand my inside and my deep love, but my inability to let it out, if it hadn't been for that from, you know, my child going through that and me getting sober, um, I think that has really deepened deepened my soul it has deepened what is inside of me and it has helped me to become um the person I need to be and that is uh I never realized I could feel so so happy and so real and so proud um it never occurred to me uh before and I didn't like myself before and um it's the greatest feeling. I mean, I'll be crying, but I feel so full of joy. I mean, it's the weirdest thing to me because it was, it's foreign for so many years to have drunk drank. And, and now I'm learning this and I feel like it's a new beginning, even two and a half years two years and seven months, um, into this. Um, I am still growing. I'm still learning. Um, I, um, I'm at peace. Most of the time. I think having children anyway is amazing. And, uh, I'm doing good and I'm happy for that. Thank you all.
0: My name's Bob. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> My home group is the last chance group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which meets Friday evenings and Greenwood. My sobriety j- date is June 10th, um, 2014, which is uh, three years, one week, and a day ago today. And um, <laughs> Laura Lee, uh, asked me to, um, uh, just, um, give you my take of, uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And I'll start with what happened. Um, three years, one week and a day ago, I was wheeled into the Faulkner hospital in outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I couldn't walk, um, have neuropathy in my legs and, um, I was, um, I was beaten up enough that, 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 um, several days later that, that, that the people in the hospital kept asking me what happened, who did this to me? Cause I was, um, I was that beaten up. I was, uh, I was, uh, starting to hallucinate. I was vomiting. I couldn't walk. And, um, and that's, um, that's, um, one of the, um, that was, that was when my sobriety was suspended and I didn't decide not to drink that day, um. To this day, I've never decided not to drink. Um When I was going into the hospital, when I was admitted to the Faulkner, um, I was hallucinating. I was, um the the doctor told my buddy that brought me in that if I hadn't gotten there that day, I probably would have been dead in two days. I don't remember this. I was unconscious, and I was in bad enough shape that the Faulkner didn't keep me. They couldn't keep me there. They shipped me to a hospital in downtown Boston. They sent me to uh, Brigham and Women's. And... um I was um intubated and um I was in the ICU for several days. That's where I woke up. But I knew before I was intubated that my drinking days were over. Um it wasn't a decision I made. If anybody asks me now, I, I've never decided to drop to um to, to stop drinking. It it was a decision that was made for me. Um I, I really can't say I was responsible for it. But um that that's what happened. And shortly thereafter, um I um I um I totally stopped. I, I totally turned my life around, and I, I left left Boston. I came out here and started anew. But um, but the story of um, of what happened to me or how I got that way, is um, I'm an alcoholic, and I was I've always been an alcoholic. I, I was born an alcoholic. I remember the first time I drank alcohol. I was um, it was in the '70s, early '70s. I was skiing, and my sister and I had come in from skiing, and we were frozen solid, and um, we were crying because our fingers and toes are warming up, and and my mother gave us wine. She, like it'll 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 you know it'll make your toes and fingers stop hurting, and it did. And so I mean I know that the first time I drank, I drank for effect, and it worked. It made my toes stop hurting. I also know that like as a kid, like um, in the '70s, I got like as a Christmas gift little little airplane bottles of of booze. I used to do that in the '70s. So as a little kid, I got like a little. Green bottle of booze and a little red bottle of booze and a little clear bottle of booze. And as a like ten year old kid, I made a bar in my in my closet in my bedroom. <laughs> and um, and and e- even at that day, I I think I was hoarding it. And I think I was like you know oh, I'm like, you know hiding this. Like so that was my first like first time I think that I was that you know that I when I look back I'm like well that's that's alcoholic behavior through and through. And a lot of my decisions through life have been um. Whether I was drunk at the time or not, it was just alcoholic decisions, and I still do that now, and 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 that's something I, I sort of have to deal with. But um, but I, the first time I ever got shut off was um, was was drinking wine at, at at Christmas Eve at home because that's you know drinking wine, calm down, little kids. But that being said, it sounds like um, like I'm blaming my parents for my alcoholism, which which isn't true. I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholism runs on my. Both both sides of my um, of my family. I, I've never met my mother's only brother because he's a hillbilly. It lives in Appalachia, and he's off the grid. And um, that's the kind of alcoholism that runs my family, like pretty hardcore. So you know that that's the way it is. And um, and and growing up, you know, in, in, as a high school kid, um, uh, you know, I was the kid that liked the party. You know, we, we probably all like that. You know, to a certain extent. Um, you know, I was always in low game trouble. By the time I got out of high school. I've been arrested a couple times. I've been in handcuffs. I've been in the backseat of a police car. I've um, i would walked downstairs to my kitchen table. and There's a police—a policeman sitting at my kitchen table. Been through all that stuff. Went to college. Um, 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 same kind of thing. Uh, just much more partying, uh, more trouble with the law. My first DWI. Uh, drinking 151 straight out of the bottle will do that to you. Um, one car accident. Gee, I wonder what. what um, um another example of um i wasn 't drinking um i wasn 't drinking the second time I got arrested in college, but you 're not supposed to smoke pot in airports um it'll get you in trouble um, it was before nine eleven but still like <laughs> um, and and so it um it's it sort of it, it's just sort of continued that way um when i when I graduated from college um my, most of my college buddies they went back to sort of you know, they went. They um, went back to the towns they grew. You know, they came from, or they they married. They got married and had kids. And and for me, I didn't do that. Like I, I I stayed in Boston. I'm like, this party's not over. Um, you guys are going to live your lives and you know have careers and stuff. It's not for me. And so um you know I started I started working, but um, um, but my my career just like the jobs I had just just didn't. I just didn't never got the traction professionally that I should have because. In retrospect, you know, I was partying. You know, it was a party. It was we were all young and we were all partying. But the people that I worked with, they were um they were studying. You know, I work in engineering. You know, it, it, they would go home and study for professional exams. And I was I had none of that. And I'm like I'm partying. I'm partying, and um, and that's the way it went for like way too long. Same thing with relationships. Like I've been lucky to be involved with a number of like really great girls, but but I I never thought about the future at all. Um. I, I mentioned I went to school in Boston. I picked Boston because there were four college brochures on my kitchen table, and my mother was, when I was in high school, my mother was hectoring me about, you got to pick where you're going to go to school. you got to pick where you're going to go to school. I had a buddy coming over, and it was Friday night. We were going to a party, and, and I, my mother's bugging me about the future, and I, I don't want to hear any of it. So I just, I was like, there. I'm going to that school. And off I went, and I stayed there for 30 years. I don't regret it, but, like, <laughs> But that that that's what drove that decision. Um, um, there's the drive in. It's gonna start. We gotta go. Um, and, and and like I said, the same thing with relationships. Like um, um, partners don't like that. Partners um, you know, especially back in those days, you know, they're thinking about getting married, they're thinking about having kids, they're thinking about um, other things. And I wasn't. And so, you know, I, I I, I still st- I'm still in touch with some of these women today. They're married. They have kids. They have houses. They have all those kind of things. I just I just wasn't in that kind of place, and so um, it probably came to a head a few a few years ago. I was involved with the, with a woman, and um, w- you know we've been going pretty well. And she told me one night she was like, but "I think we should we should move in together." And we were at a nice Mexican restaurant, and there was like homemade sangria, and it was like. It was like just the right kind of buzz. You know, And you're like, it's that it really ever get there, but it's just the right kind of buzz. And she mentions that she wants she thinks we should um, we should move in together. And I had done that previously when I was younger. And I said I'd never do that again. But I knew right then and there, I was like, I'm not going to stop drinking and this is going to be a problem. And I, if I'd been an adult, if I'd been a man, if I'd been not an alcoholic, I hopefully would have said this isn't going to work. But I didn't do that. Uh, I said, "Yeah, let's move in together," and I put her through six years of hell. And that is my biggest regret: that I can't give her those years back. I can do, I can, I, I can, I can do a lot of things, but I can't give her those years back. And I knew from the get-go that I was making a mistake, and I did it anyway because I'm a selfish person. And that, um, and and that sort of that, um. That is one of the things that sort of defines me as an alcoholic and probably all of us. And that really it really came to a head when um, after she moved out, um, because, you know, it, that's the way it was going to work out. And so I got this job. I got this part time job. It wasn't supposed to be a part time job. It was supposed to be a part time to a full time job. But over the course of five years, I was there for five years. But it ended up I didn't have a boss. I didn't have real defined hours. My um, All I had to do was get things done, and the girlfriend had just moved out. And so for, like, five years, I just started to drink a little bit more each day. I, I would drink before work. I drank before work every day for five years, um, like 5 o'clock in the morning. You know, I would pass out early at night, like a lot of us did. And so I'd wake up at the morning, 4 o'clock, and, I'm like, I don't have to be at work until well, I can be at work whenever I want to. So I would start drinking, 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning, vodka and coffee and... Um, I knew up liquor stores that opened at 8 o'clock, so I could stop on the way to the store, I mean, on the way to work. I would never have really any responsibilities. I'd go out drinking at lunch, so I'd get nips at lunch. I knew up liquor stores on the way back. I'm stopping the liquor stores on the way back. And um, things just got, you can uh, understand, worse and worse and worse. And what happened um, when it really came to an end was um, I had, it had gotten so bad, I was just sitting in my apartment drinking, and I mentioned I had neuropathy in my legs, and I I drank so much that I started to fall down. And I also um, started to knock off liquor bottles off of my little coffee table. So there's broken glass on the floor because I'm drunk and I don't clean it up. And um, I got a second DWI around this time, too, which I didn't even know that I got a DWI until I missed the court date because that kind of stuff happens when you're an alcoholic. So – uh, lost my train of thought, but um, oh, so I had this job and um, there's broken glass all on the floor. I start to fall down, and one day I'm staggering around. I fall down, fall down onto broken glass. This is how I get bruises. I get cuts. I decide, um, not sure what to do, climb into the bathtub because that's what I'm going to do or something. And then I realize I'm drunk. I can't get out of the bathtub, and so I decide to pass out there. I wake up in the morning and a few hours later, I'm in a bathtub, I'm covered with blood, and I realize I'm wet because I'm also covered with urine. And that's what it was like for me. Um, people talk about high-bottom drunks, low-bottom drunks. Um, that's what it was for me. Um, if I was to drink again, that's where I am again. I'm in a bathtub, bleeding, covered with my own urine. And so that's what it was like. So then, um, very shortly after, I ended up in the hospital and um my family decides that I, I can't go back to that apartment that I have to completely change come out here move into my brother's house get sober um right away start um go to the my last chance group which I which I this is still my home group and um and I'm uh that's when it was pointed out to me that um that my um my interest in drinking really has been lifted, which is, which is. I mean, you guys just heard that story. The fact that I I really don't think about drinking at all. I, it's just, it's just a gift. I don't have drinking dreams. I don't think about it. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it, it is pretty remarkable that 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 is the case. And as I as I go through this, um, you know, through this sobriety thing, I started going to last chance, and one of the first things you know that struck me is you hear all these stories from other people that are. Um, that are that are sharing these common stories that you just can't believe that that person is sharing your exact same story, even though they're completely different, and and so you know that that um, you know that began to um that began to creep in creep into my world. That's about the time when I, I, I it began became apparent to me that I have a great that I have a higher power that's influencing these things. Um, as professionally as a sober person, I had, had all these kinds of like. Crazy tumults. Um, uh, uh, I've been fired twice in sobriety. Um, I quit the same job twice for exactly the same reason. I think that reason is because this higher power. I just had a full year that I just didn't get it right. So life, being life, just said try it again, Bob. And so I, like, I lived this. It was like a groundhog year. But you know, apparently it was was sort of required. So I, you know, learn these things. So as I go along now, now I'm. Like three years sober i'm still i still kind of feel um like this it's just weird like crazy agitated sort of sort of thing and and for a long time, I had a real hard time finding a job. I was very close to being homeless for a for a short period of time, but one of the things I learned is that um you know that when i was almost when I was that close to homeless um there was people in in Alcoholics Anonymous that offered, these, you know, if, they said, if it comes to that, you can stay at our house. You know, we're not going to let that happen to you. And I know these people and I know their house and there's they don't have room, but they still offered. And it didn't come to that. But in the back of my mind, you bet I knew it that, you know, that it's probably, you know, if it really gets up bad, it's pro- I'm probably not going to end up in the street. But so, you know, it, it's been um, it's, it's been a slow it's been a slow s- step. Um I don't really struggle with not drinking that much, but it's the whole living a sober life is is very difficult to me. I had um, my boss pulled me aside like two weeks ago, and you know I, I'm just very short tempered and snapping at people. And he was he, he pulled me aside and he was like, um, "You can't do that anymore. You're not going to be working here." And so that's when I realized um, there's so much more to this sobriety thing than just not drinking, and so I have to um i have to focus on that i'm just about done steve (laughs) i heard that um but but so i i have to um when i started this job in december that's all i did for since then i've probably taken 10 days off total since that time and it's just it's just it's just it's too much so i have to i have to be a more full person I, i can't just be the guy that works hard and the guy that doesn't drink you know i have to be you know, have to embrace AA more, which is which is why I'm here. I've never been to this meeting before, but um the AA powers that be uh put me here. Um and, and I'm thankful for it. Um so it's it's good. So I have to um that's my sober sober the next hurdle is being more than just a person that doesn't drink and a person that tries not to get fired. Um and so um and so that you know, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, you know, I've um I have to take these concrete steps, and, and doubling down on sobriety is is one of them. So, um, so that's what I'm going to do. So, um, I want to thank everybody here for being here and um, listening to me. So, so I got. Thanks.
2: Hi, my name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thanks for having me here tonight. My sobriety date is ten twenty three two thousand fifteen. Uh, I have a home group and I have a service commitment, which is. Uh, telling my story to a bunch of teenagers, which seems a lot easier than this for some reason. (laughs) Um, And there's no microphone. So I tried to write an outline of what I was going to say tonight, and I got about this far. And uh, the only thing that was on it was uh, the highlights of my sobriety. So I'm going to save that for towards the end. I'm just going to start at the beginning. Um, I grew up in a uh, I grew up in a really loving household. I have two younger sisters, and uh, they're them and my parents. They're all normies. Um, I started going. I started going towards the path of my addiction when I was really young, like 11, 12 years old, uh, stealing beers from my friend's parents, and uh, I immediately loved it. It was the early 90s, and grunge was like in full swing, and it, was, it seemed like the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. By the time... By the time I was like uh fourteen, it was dropping acid and drinking pretty much every day, definitely smoking weed every day and uh, and I kept getting in trouble. My parents obviously thought I was going down the wrong path but uh i was I was really stubborn and I didn't want to. I didn't want to listen to anything they said I uh, they would try to ground me and I would just take off by the time I was 16 I was gone for two three months at a time uh, not going to school getting arrested and uh, by the time I was 17 uh, I started shooting heroin and uh just to give you some perspective, I'm 34 now and I have a little over a year of sobriety. Um when I was 17 I also went to my first inpatient treatment. It was uh a Christian thing called U turn for Christ down in Southern California. It uh it was good because it kept me sober for the eight months that I was there mostly. Um But after that, and when I was there, when I first got there, like I had been basically living on people's couches, sleeping in people's cars, and not had any money. Knew that I was going to be either in jail or dead uh, within the next couple years the way I was living. So when I went there, I was really ready to go there. But after I was there for about a month, I decided that me sticking with the program down there was going to be the quickest way to get back to using the way that I wanted to use. And back then it was just, you know, I want to be able to smoke pot again. Like that's what I wanted to do. Um. So with that in mind, I finished the program and quickly started smoking pot again. And I managed to keep it, You know, somewhat reasonable until the time I was 21. And when I was 21, uh, like, the party was on. All my friends were 21. It was just going out to the bars. I think within three weeks of turning 21, I was drinking every night. Um, And it quickly moved into other drugs. Like, there was a big cocaine section in there. And uh, then I decided that uh, cocaine was making me crazy. So I kind of did the hippie thing and I went to all the hallucinogens and smoking a bunch of pot and I'd always kind of go back and forth. Uh, You know, I'd notice that I was smoking too much pot, so I'd smoke less pot and drink more. And uh, if I was drinking too much, then I'd start smoking more pot and drink less. Uh, It was... So when I was 18, actually when I was in that program, I had a buddy, uh, kind of my my road dog from those days. Uh, he OD'd and died. So I had told myself I wasn't going to do heroin anymore. By the time I was about 25, uh, I got introduced to Oxycontin, and it was... Uh, I convinced myself that it wasn't heroin because it was in a pill form. So, but it smelled just like heroin. Um, so I, I got going on that, and it was, uh, you know, it was just supplementing my, uh, my other daily drugs at first. And then I met a girl and uh, got engaged. And I decided that since I was going to be getting married, I should probably, like, do all the Oxycontin I want to do right now. <laughs> and uh, so then I was, like, immediately strung out. I did Oxycontin every day after that until I started doing heroin again. But uh, I did get married. Um, we had uh, my house that I lived in. We started a business together. And the whole time I was just like basically stealing all the money out of the business and, uh, and basically spent every dime we had. She left, uh, lost the house, lost the business and ended up living in, uh, my house with no running water, no electricity for like nine months. And during this time, I, uh. I became a thief to support my habit and, uh, stole from, uh, strangers, stole from the people I loved, basically stole from anybody. Um, when that, uh, when I finally did lose my house, I was living out of a car and my, uh, this is when I was like 27 or something. Um, my whole family, they tried to have like interventions on me and, uh, and I basically just, you know, gave him the finger, and like I saw the intervention coming. I could see them all inside the house, and I just split, so they never got to actually do it. Um, and then they kept like leaving DVDs on my door of what they would all say at the intervention. And, uh, I never, I never watched them. So, uh, I finally ran out of gas one day, and I called my uncle. And he came and gave me some gas and he said, Mark, you know, we, we all know you're still getting high and, uh, we just want you to know that there's options. And, um, I really broke down and decided that I, I needed some help. And I ended up in another, uh, year long Christian program over in Spokane. It was, uh, it was called Teen Challenge. It wasn't just for teenagers. <laughs> uh So that I spent I guess it was the year that I was 29 there and uh that was there was no uh there was no AA there was no 12 steps uh I'd say the only the only uh redeeming uh characteristic of it was that it kept me sober for the year I was there cuz I was basically locked up um you know, and it kind of, it let me know a little bit that I could have fun in sobriety again. Uh, cause we did have a good time there occasionally. Um, getting out of there, I, I met a girl that I knew, uh, had some of the same problems I had. And two weeks out of that program, I was strung out again. And that basically led into the next, uh, uh, three, two two and a half years uh, of my life and that was when it really started getting bad uh, I got reintroduced to crack and uh, I spent most I spent about a year and a half of that time living in a minivan in my parents' driveway out of the kindness of their heart because they wouldn't let me in the house um, and I'll skip over some of it towards the end of that time, basically, uh, I, I pissed off a bunch of drug dealers and, uh, ended up in the hospital. And at that point I was, I was scared and I knew that something had to change. Um, so, uh, I ended up going to treatment over Lakeside Milam about, uh, a little over two years ago. And that was my first real introduction to AA and the whole uh, it's like, there's a formula for getting sober that I had never been introduced to before. And for me, it was moving into an Oxford house, um, you know, getting a sponsor, doing the steps, going to meetings. Uh, I did the outpatient thing, you know, they, they told me all these things that I needed to do and I, I really wanted to bank the odds in my favor. Like, uh, I was finally seeing people that had actually recovered and meeting them. And, uh, these were the things that they had done. Um, maybe not the outpatient part of it, but, um, so, and it, it was Oxford was really convenient cause I didn't have any other place to live. So, uh, you know, when I moved into an Oxford house, it was, uh, it was like, I had a bunch of instant sober friends and there were people that wanted to go to meetings too. And, uh, you know, at least a few of them were working a program. So, so I had, basically I had a really strong desire to stay sober and yeah, this is two years ago. I, uh, I, I jumped in head first. I, I don't know if I did 90 and 90, but I, I was going to a bunch of meetings. I was going to meetings almost every day and uh, meeting people in the program, making sober friends. Um, and, you know, the one piece of advice that I didn't take through treatment at that time uh, that I, uh, I always make a point of sharing about because uh, it was my downfall this last year was I decided to get into a relationship uh, after about four months? Four months of being sober, like the first time in my life, like I have no idea who I who I even am, and uh, and I wanted to bring somebody else into that shitstorm. You know, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous, but I did it, and uh, it didn't work out well. Uh, you know, and one of the things that. Uh, it, it basically, she was a normie, and it started taking me away from the program. I decided I'd rather spend my time with her than going to meetings, than meeting with my sponsor and doing the things uh, that now I know I need to do for my sobriety. So uh, at about nine months last year, uh, that relationship fell apart, and uh, here I was not in the center of AA, And not well connected. I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I felt like I had uh, failed in sobriety. And it was, uh, yeah, it it was a terrible feeling. I sat around for about two days uh, watching Netflix and then went to work on Monday and packed up about halfway through the day. And I had made my decision like I was going to go use and there was nothing anybody could do. And I didn't want to tell anybody because uh You know then they try to stop me naturally, <laughs> so um, so I did, and it wasn't am I out of time? oh, I was reading it backwards so okay i'll fi- I'll finish really quick um, anyways, I went back to treatment, got out uh, have stayed out of a relationship this year, and uh, a couple of the real highlights of my sobriety were uh you know, my dad called me and uh, said he had a job that he needed help finishing up and he wasn't going to be able to uh, to be there. And instead of uh, showing up two hours late and asking for money when I got there, I was there in five minutes and I got to help him finish. Uh, just for Thanksgiving, um, I got to go pick my grandma up and bring her to Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, actually just a couple of days before that, my sister's fiance asked me to be in the wedding, and uh, I call my mom about every other day. Uh, I went to church with her this morning, and uh, those those are the gifts that this program has given me. Those are the things that, like when I think about my sobriety, that really stand out to me. So, thanks for letting me share.
3: Hi, I'm Chuck. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> my sob- sobriety date is uh, March 7th, uh, this last March 7th, I had two years, and my home group is Burke Avenue Men's Group. I have a sponsor, Greg, and I'm working my way through the steps still. So, uh, I thought today, um, since it's Easter, I'd talk a little bit about spirituality, and I'm going to start reading a little bit from We Agnostics. You've probably heard this a million times, but... It always is impactful and really relevant to my sobriety, so hopefully I can get something from it. Logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like it. It is not by chance we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses, and to draw conclusions. That is one of man's magnificent attributes. We agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we are at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it more sane and logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when, it, when we threw up our hands in doubt and said, we don't know. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis— We could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile, and we did not like to lose our support. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? For we For we not believe in our own reasoning. Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, abjectly faithful to the God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found, too, that we had been worshipers. What a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshipped people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves? And then, with a better motive, had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower? Who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we had been living by faith, and little else. Imagine life without faith. Were nothing left but pure reason, it wouldn't be life. But we believed in life, of course we did. We could not prove life in the sense that you can prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points, yet there it was. Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons created out of nothing, meaning nothing, whirling on to a destiny of nothingness? Of course we couldn't. The electrons themselves seemed more intelligent than that, at least so the chemist said. Hence we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason, as most of us use it, entirely dependable. Though it emanate from our best minds, what about people who proved that men could never fly? Yet we had been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems. They say God made these things possible, and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release but we liked to tell ourselves it wasn't true actually we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man woman and child is the fundamental fundamental idea of god it may be obscured by calamity by pomp by worship of other things but in some form or other it is there for faith in a power greater than ourselves and mirac- miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself So that was me. I was um, your typical cynical uh, guy who didn't believe in religion and, in fact, was, you know, um, I like to make fun of it. I like to, you know, pretend that I knew better, to say that people who had faith were um, stupid, you know, weren't rational. Uh, especially those who, who participated in organized religion. That was the worst kind of, of all. You know, I was the guy, went to college, and I studied science, and then I went on to a career in law. And step by step, I I followed what I thought was reason, and, you know, not knowing the entire time that it was self-will, and to a fault denying that, you know, the existence of a higher power had any sort of effect or... or um Positive influence in my life, or could have any positive influence in my life, um, and I now know that that was a symptom, and that that was part of my disease. And um, it's taken a long time to come to that understanding. And I'm two years into my sobriety, and I still struggle with it. To be quite honest with you, um, I started out as I was telling somebody um, earlier prior to the meeting in the Pacific Group in in Southern California. My father was an alcoholic, and um, My parents were split up, and um, so what my brother and I got to do when my dad had us on weekends is he would take us to meetings. Uh, That was real fun. but um, So we'd be in the back of these smoke-filled rooms at the time, and there'd be cookies, so we'd have lots of cookies, and we'd point and laugh at all the losers. You know, we'd listen to these stories, and we'd say, how could people be laid so low? You know, that's just ridiculous. And, you know, our own father was a drunk and, you know, we saw that and we knew that, but, you know, he was, he was sober at that point And so wasn't, wasn't quite on the level of the losers that the other people were in our own minds, but it was with this sort of information that I sort of carried forward into my adult life. And, you know, once I found alcohol, oh boy, you know, it was something different. And, um. You know, I should have known probably, and I think I did on a lot of levels that I was, you know, at all times, that I was going to be an alcoholic. Um, But when you're young, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're going strong, uh, it's not necessarily the problem that it becomes later in life. And that was the case for me. In my case, uh, I drank uh, to make myself comfortable, to make friends, to feel like I belonged. Uh, And that worked in high school and that really worked in college when I went to college, I went to WSU. That's the the major leagues of drinking and um, followed all my friends there and had my, had this peer group of drinker drinkers to, you know, sustain me and to, to carry along. And that's what I did. You know, I didn't go to college to study. I went to college to drink. I'm looking back on this now and figuring this all out. And, um, and it worked and I was somehow able to, to carry through and Get a good enough grade point average that I wasn't thrown out of there, um, but that's what I did, and I drank, and all this time, you know I still maintained that cynicism and um, and I didn't have any sort of prayer, I didn't have any sort of meditation, I didn't have any sort of um respect for any sort of higher power other than just drinking and and logic and reason and according to my own mind and this this went on and you know through college and into law school even. And um, I even drank uh, all the way through law school and somehow still made it through. Based on my own reasoning, uh, I thought I was smarter than everybody else, so that's how I was able to accomplish all this, you know. I was able to drink, but blackout drunk, you know, two times a night, sometimes three times, uh, two times a a week, sometimes three times a week while I was studying for finals even. I was able to carry through because I had this reason, you know. I had this um, this 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 brain that was smarter than everybody else in the room. Uh, so that's what I did, and um, that worked until it didn't. And when it didn't start, when it started not working, it really started not working. Uh, I got married. I had two kids, and I had a practice. I was a partner in a law firm, and I drank it all away. It's really that simple. I mean, you, I could spin it any different number of ways, but... Um, I started drinking by myself. I started drinking in the basement alone because when I drank with other people, it wasn't, you know, they couldn't keep up with me. So it wasn't worth the time. In fact, I got to a point where I wouldn't even drink if I went out because it just, it was, it was like a farce drinking with other people because they didn't drink the same way I did. They drink, you know, they would have a glass of wine or enjoy themselves or, you know, be at a cocktail party and, and be social. And I'd be thinking the whole time, when can I get out of here so I can really start drinking? And um, that's when I would go home and, and retire to the basement and, or figure out a project in the garage, and that's where I would drink. And I would drink until I blacked out almost every night, um, and this went on for about two years. Uh, my law practice eventually fell apart, and I was kicked out of uh, my firm as a partner and stayed on as what they call of counsel which meant I get to be by home, by, home by myself, associated with the firm still. But, hey, that's more time to drink. So I would started drinking earlier and earlier in the day. Uh, and this went on and on and um, until one day, uh, one night, I found myself in my basement alone, had been drinking for hours and hours, just completely out of my mind, drunk. And uh, I was looking at my life insurance policy. And using my legal mind and my reason and trying to figure out if I could kill myself and still collect. And that's that's sort of my aha moment. That's when I figured out this has to stop. i got to do something about this. And I was fortunate enough uh, to have some good friends in the program. And I called them. And they took me to a meeting the next day. And uh, I've had a relapse since then. Um, but... Uh, That time, that was about two and a half years ago, so I had about uh, uh, six months into it, and I had a relapse. But as I said, I have two years now, and um, I've lost a lot, and I've lost my integrity. As I said, I lost my law practice. I've had to give it up and move on to another career, but I'm sober, and and I've found some measure of, of a higher power. And for me, the higher power is my home group. It's my sponsor. It's sort of the collective consciousness of the group and AA in general. And it's a full circle. You know, I've come full circle since sitting in those rooms and pointing at what I thought were losers and, and realizing now that, that those were just me. Those were folks just like I was. I am. And um, I guess I should be humbled by that. And, and I am in a certain sense, but I'm also proud to be among uh, those people that I once scorned and I'm proud to be amongst you and I thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to my story.
2: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast
0: is ad free and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit sobercast.com and look for the donate links.
1: Thank you very much.